Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to Law Librarian Conversations on Blog Talk Radio, the podcast about all things law library, legal bibliography, and the law library profession. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks everybody for joining us, and I'd like to thank the band for uh, uh, signing us in with that uh, lovely music. Um, and uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us on uh, this Friday afternoon, March 20th. Um, we have a very uh, exciting program scheduled for you today. Um, I'm a little uh, down in the mouth uh, today, and uh, so I'm going to be sitting back and enjoying the conversation that's coming up. But I am uh, Richard Leiter, coming to you live from the executive suites of the mighty Schmidt Wall Library at the University of Nebraska College of Law in the heart of the heartland, Lincoln, Nebraska. Is that a dramatic? That is way dramatic. Okay. So anyway, we, have, we do, but aside from me, the, the important people that are here with us today um, I'm going to start by introducing a very old friend, in fact, uh, co-founder of this podcast way back when, Brian Spryman. Hello, everybody. Who is uh, joining me in studio, such as it is. And um, uh, and then we have scattered far and wide uh, Valerie Craigle at University of Utah. College Hi there. Law. Hello. Uh, Bess Reynolds from, tell me the name of your firm. My notes are. Debevoise and Plimpton in snowy New York. In snowy New York. Snowy. That's right. Boy, you, today. It's coming down. Is, uh, 70 degrees and sunny here in Lincoln. And then we have Vicki uh, Coulter from the University of Wisconsin. Hi, everyone. I hear they play Hi. basketball up there. Yes, we and, are quite deep um, in basket all. And my co-host, um, I don't know where to say you're from, Roger, Roger Skalbeck, who's presently at Georgetown, but is uh, moving south. University of Richmond has a director soon. He's also here. Indeed, well, glad to be here. I'm glad to be moving down south as well. <laughs> Joining the ranks of uh, directors. And um, Ken Hirsch, University of Cincinnati. And Good afternoon. Singer All right. Um, well, today, what we're uh, going to be talking about, the title, uh, show title is the future of technical services in law libraries. The 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 topic has arisen, you know, for uh, a variety of of reasons. Um, first of all, we've seen a whole bunch of very curious, interesting job titles that have been popping up in uh, job announcements that tell us something about. Um, the way things are changing in tech services. Um, I think that at least in the law library community, well, 
people outside the law library community have no idea what we're doing anyway. But within it, we think of tech services people as catalogers and serial check-in people. Um, but now they've got all these fancy names. We'll run through some of those in a, in a minute. Um, and also, um, you know, the uh, sort of the economics of um, law libraries, just in terms of workflow and money and resources, are also changing um, considerably. And so I'm seeing sizes of tech services staff go up and down. So what I thought would be a great fun, or we all did, uh, Roger and I, uh, uh, you know, talked about what the topic would be coming up. What is tech services uh, going to be like? How is it changing? And who better to tell us uh, about that but three of four of our uh, brightest tech services people uh, in the business. So I just would like to lead it off here later. Um so let's run through a couple of these uh, um, job titles to start out. Brian, you put together a list. I did put together a list. Uh, it didn't take me too long, uh, but I decided that uh, Richard asked me to see if I could find some different names. So I'm going to just run through a bunch of these names. You ready? Metadata Management Librarian. Librarian for Digital Resources. Collection and Digital Initiatives Librarian catalog slash metadata librarian, user experience and meta and media technologies librarian, collection and knowledge management librarian, library systems and technical services librarian, systems librarian, office for information systems, electronic resources management and discovery services librarian, director of discovery and access, head of resource management, Knowledge Management Library, Librarian, excuse me, Library Discovery and Integrated Systems Coordinator, Digital Technologies Development Librarian, Act Collection Access and Support Services Librarian, and the last one on the list, and there's certainly a lot more, is Library Information Technology Services Director. So, like Rich said, this is sort of uh, pointing toward uh, trying to re-describe what we're trying to grapple with uh, while we change so dramatically in our area that we used to call technical services. Um, some I, there was, I didn't mention all of the different um, places that I went that still had your basic catalog librarian um, and uh, technical services head. So there are still places that are doing that, but the spectrum is, uh, is moving. It's a moving target. It's something that I think everybody needs to look at. If you're a tech services librarian listening in, um, it's a good idea maybe instead of being uh, more reactive to, to your administration to be more proactive and, uh, and look at some of these uh, uh, names and ask yourself, well, is this a name that, that better describes what I'm doing or maybe will better describe what I'm doing? So that, that's the list. Um, one of the the aspects of a lot of these titles that that really grabs my attention, um, I guess as a director or at least as somebody with a public services background and orientation, 
are the ones that include discovery and user experience. And after all, that's really what cataloging, uh, you know, and a lot of what was happening in tech services was all about. Helping as well our as patrons. Technology. As well as the technology, yes. Yeah. You want to expand on that, Beth? Um, this is Vicky, and I'm just the technology is obviously the way that so much of the future is heading, and obviously affecting tech services since so much more of the print is going out, and electronic resources are the wave of the future, and we're all wondering. Where do we fit into that role? And I think there's quite a few ways that technical services librarians can fit into it. It's just a matter of changing the dynamic and changing our way of thinking and um, being open to possibilities. Uh, this is Beth. I'd like to add that uh, it, to simplify all of this, whenever one of the attorneys asks me what I do in the library, I say that we're responsible for finding what you want. In other words, we know what the resources are that are available and delivering it in a timely fashion. So uh, discovery is a primary interest of ours and my group was uh, slightly prematurely renamed electronic resources management uh, over technical services, but as our collections move in that direction, it's just shifting our focus towards uh, delivering digital instead of delivering print. We do very similar things. Obviously, we're leaving off the filing and so on. As that drops by the wayside um, in, in exchange for managing electronic resources. I would pick up from what Beth said there as well that I think it may be a matter of getting, not, um, getting the uh, people that we work for and with to think differently of us that it's possible that we need to be looking at renaming some of our titles and our departments, you know, technical services and some of the readings you're seeing now more and more of those titles are more expansive to include the electronic resources and access services, discovery, etc. Um, just another way to be more encompassing of what we all do that it's not just the technical aspects anymore. This is Valerie. Um, I can add another title for you, Access Technologies Librarian, which is mm -hmm. what I am. That's what they hired me as. Um, but I do, I do electronic resources management, and of course, you know, we're experiencing this, the same things that Beth and Vicki have talked about um, with our print resources. But we're also really um, deeply involved in development of the discovery layer, um, and we've taken on digital initiatives as well. So. So I think we're following that trend. Okay, can you expand with discovery layer? What does that mean? Sure. What so discovery layer. So a discovery layer is, and <laughs> I don't have a lot of people have tried to define it. It's a really complex. It's a complex idea, but it's not. Um, Basically what a discovery layer does is it is the public interface to a variety of resources that are owned or licensed by a library. So your catalog, your digital collections, your electronic resources, um, your e-publications platform, all of the metadata 
um, for those platforms um, can be harvested and then put into a central index for a discovery layer. Um, and then that metadata is available for searching for the end user. So at the University of Utah, we use Primo as our discovery layer. Um, Innovative Interfaces uses Encore, I believe. Um, and there are, no, there are a number of different discovery layers. Um, oh, I don't I know see. if that answered your question. So Primo is is um, who, who is your ILF? So Ex Libris um, is oh. our vendor for us. So we have a suite of services. We have a discovery layer, and then um, Aleph, or excuse me, Alma. We've just migrated to Alma, which is an Ex Libris product, and that is the ILS. It's also electronic resources management. It's also, you know, acquisitions. It's sort of a comprehensive um, tool. Well, how how um, how granular do, do the do your sources get? Um, like. Does it point people to Hein Online, or does it point yeah. people mm -hmm. to to, or does it point people to, um, you know, Harvard Law Review available sure. in Hein Online or immigration? Sure. Well, so, yeah. So the discovery layer, um, we purchased a package called Primo Central, which is an index at the article level. So people can search our catalog for, you know, article titles and get those those titles through the discovery layer. Um it it's certainly a more encompassing one stop shop for searching for a variety of materials. You can type in your search strategy and be able to retrieve books on that topic, magazine articles, newspaper articles, etc. One of the things with the discovery um, sourcing is there are more facets that you can narrow down your topic. You do a broad search and then narrow down the topic by clicking on or off of facets, narrowing it by a year or um, narrowing down your subject focus as a result. Part of the problem and what I see is the role could be for technical services librarians is because the discovery is so much the up-and-coming thing, it's also very limiting by what metadata is used to um, help to narrow those focus to what metadata is assigned to each of the articles as well as the books. And so if somebody is searching for something, if the metadata, is, metadata isn't robust enough or consistent enough, there may be articles that will be missed as a result. So it's it's, or in a way, sort of another LC subject heading for metadata that to be having everybody using the same um, descriptors for the articles so that when you do searches for in a certain topic, you're able to get more of a broad range, but not so broad that you can't narrow your focus, if that makes sense. And each of the programs, each of the um, discovery, the, there are, I think, five different, at least five different types of discovery products that are available on the market. Um, here at the UW, Wisconsin, sorry, at the University of Wisconsin, we're going to be migrating to Alma as a UW system-wide, and we will be, um, most of the system is going to be using Primo, 
Central, here at Wisconsin and Madison, we're going to be developing our own. Um, part of that is because digital collections, the Alma Primo product does not have enough metadata specific for digital collections, and we have such a large digital repository that we want to be able to create our own so that that material can be searchable in the discovery product. So, Victoria or Beth, how, who's putting in the metadata so that you can go down to the articles level? Uh, um, I'll have to turn that over to uh, to Vicki because we don't have a discovery product. Uh, keeping in mind, we are a law firm library with uh, about 650 attorneys as our patrons. I'll explain later how we do it, but continue okay. with the discovery products. Um, at this point, since we haven't migrated over to Alma, um, the, there is another department on campus that is trying to develop the um, tailored version of it. So it's more of our systems librarians are working to create this. Um, so it's it's another department, more not the catalogers. They're more of the IT type people who are developing this. However, okay. our catalogers want to be working with. It's a, it's a matter of communication and trying to get all these various departments, so the IT folks who are making it happen, work with the catalogers who can help with keeping things consistent so that there is this coverability of capability in that product. So um, we are doing some scanning of digital collections, and I know our catalogger is trying to work with the people who are scanning our collections so that we can catalog those and get that metadata in there so that that would be findable as well. So it's a kind of here at least, it's a variety, and since we haven't gone live yet, it's all in a uh, still-in-the-process kind of position. So, Victoria, what is it that you're scanning? I'm kind of confused here. We are scanning, um, right now we're trying to create our own digital archive of faculty articles, books, um, okay. our law school publications. We're scanning those into a digital archive, and we want to make those add metadata to that as well so that it would be also findable in our discovery layer once that goes live. Is that a type of digital commons for you then? Yes, right, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, and this is Roger here. Um, I think it's um, wanted to highlight a couple things. One, I put a link in the chat room to um, a report from Marshall Breeding called uh, "The Future of Library Resource Discovery" that I think covers a lot of um, current thinking and an overview of, of both the products, but also the topics in the area. Wanted to highlight um, two things from that. Um, one, just to mention it, but then the other one is. Um, in here, he mentions um, the central index idea, and I think this will kind of get to uh, some questions that came up here now, which is, you know, what goes into this index? Because you're not just searching the catalog anymore or all of the records you load into the ILS. And that's, I think, a big challenge that is, is coming up with technical services and, and, and discovery tools. And what they highlight, and or what he highlights in the list is, a uh, real quick list here is metadata and full text from commercial publishers, content from A&I resources, abstracting indexing resources, metadata from open access repositories, and something like HathiTrust would be an interesting one there where they allow people to harvest public domain materials. And there's 
they have uh, independent collections as well. And then the one that was just mentioned, metadata from or full text from relevant institutional repositories. Something like wow. Press Scholarly Commons is often harvested and included in result sets um, for um, those kind of tools. And then the last one they list is uh, the, the sort of penultimate, or not the the, uh, the ultimate one that we've always you know thought about, which is bibliographic and holdings information from a library's resource management system, aka you know the ILS and the catalog. So you know I think that that sort of presents this mixed bag of the kinds of content resources that we're hoping to or aiming to, to present people access to all from you know, that single search box sort of mode with post-search filters and facets and all that kind of stuff. And with so having, I just wanted to add that in there. Go ahead. And having some consistent metadata and authority control of those subjects using a thesaurus or something so that Ever what the subjects that people are using for that variety of material is somewhat more consistent to help the findability. Absolutely. Which you know, if you look at something like an institutional repository from, you know, B Press is one that a lot of people use, but but any of them, that can be a big challenge to have Where that or to have a way to map it. What is the source of the standard thesaurus? Or is there any that's building or developing or uh, uh, already created? Where do you turn to for that? Unless that's anybody the, else can answer, I was not aware of a standard thesaurus, and I think that's what the technical services librarians could work toward creating. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, any of my co-speakers co co here. Well, one of the things, um, this is Valerie, one of the things, one of the ways um, that discovery becomes a bit more simplified, I guess, in a discovery layer is through the process of normalization. Um, and that happens kind of on the back end of the discovery layer. And so you have all of this metadata coming through, and it's coming from a bunch of different sources. And so the information providers are providing that metadata. At some point, it has to be cleaned up a little bit, um, reoriented, um, you know, and, and developed in such a way that those filters and those facets make sense in the discovery layer itself. And so I believe that you can customize your normalization rules you know, so that they take a certain set of metadata and a certain set of, a certain set of terms and say, these are five terms that could be consolidated into this one term, or you know, this mm. set of metadata could be put into this facet. And so I think a lot of that happens on the on the normalization side of things. Well, so is it? Would you say is it more uh, detailed and more a complex of a process that you're describing than um, LC subject headings, for example, or even classification, or less, more or less complex. I don't know if I would say it's more or less complex. I think I think it's a com I think it's a, just a different way of yeah. approaching yeah. Um, those authorities because it's not really it's not necessarily subject authority, it's 
content authority, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's it's trying to contextualize. I think you know what a discovery layer attempts to do is to try to contextualize all of the, this metadata that's coming from disparate systems. Um, and I don't think that the discovery layer vendors have a lot of control over what metadata they're getting. I mean, the metadata has to comply to a certain standard, um, but you know that it's they're not developing it. It's coming from a lot of different sources. Fascinating. So. Um, So is there a a coordinated move to to uh develop a set of standards going right now or is there I'm I'm not a I mean I I keep from a from my perspective, which is a few steps a couple steps away from tech services, I keep hearing about uh standard groups or you know, um uh, developing uh, the the toolbox RDA toolbox and things like that, but I don't know whether they're actually doing you know metadata standard or um, yeah standard description. I should stop. Well, I think it depends about. on I, I think it depends on the types of materials you're working with. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're talking about the development of digital collections specifically. There are definitely metadata standards um, out there. I mean, Dublin Core and then different oh. organizations and institutions take Dublin Core and expand upon that to, you know, address whatever issues they have in their digital collections. Um, you know, and then there's RDA and METS and EAD, and you could go on and on. There are lots of standards for things like that. I don't know. Um, so if you're talking about, you know, what Lexis, what standard Lexis is using to develop the metadata for their resources, I would imagine that that's proprietary and that they're not sharing it. Um, I don't know if anybody knows any more about about some of the bigger vendors, but um, to me that's a bit of a black box. But when you're dealing with digital collections, there are definitely very specific standards out there. And again, uh, this is Beth. I refer you to the article that was mentioned before, The Future of Library Resource Discovery by Marshall Breeding, because it was a white paper commissioned by NISO, and so it does talk a bit about standards, and obviously they're looking at what standards might become. So, you know, it's an opportunity for, for uh, us in, in our community right. to, to have input. I mean, we should be speaking up about these issues. I know there are a lot of people involved in this in in great depth, but um, you know, it's it's not a common topic. If you're not in academia, you're probably not hearing that much about it. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Right. I think that's true. So, Valerie, did I understand you? Did you say something about Lexis's metadata? Yeah, um I mean any any information provider has to apply a certain you right. know set of metadata to their their resources. Um what that is though and what people are using, I 
I have no idea, you know. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, when, when we say not. metadata, you know, there's you've got descriptive metadata, so you've got titles and authors and et cetera, and then you have um, technological metadata, um, which can describe the bit depth of a piece of of a, of a type of material or, you know, how something was created or when it was created. Um, so they're all different types of metadata. Um, and I just, I don't know what they yeah. use and I don't know how a discovery layer vendor ingests that, you know, and or what requirements they have um, for getting ingestion for those things. Um, I, I have some input um, about what others are doing. For example, in our uh, in our law firm, we have a portal, and the portal supports different practice groups. They develop their own pages, and of course, they're very interested in law firms in uh, internal work product. So, um, you know, exemplary documents that can be used by others, so that they're not reinventing the wheel, but they do not manually harvest it, ha harvest um, the the information that they're going to use to uh, index these documents. They're actually, um, you know, how the system goes through and um, and and starts doing a some kind of process of looking at a document and finding out what what people are using it for, and somehow eventually that accumulates, I know I sound very naive here, but it accumulates into a body of um, of metadata, so to speak. It used to be that there were people going through and literally tagging articles document by document, but that was an impossible project when you're, you know, once you go in the tens of thousands of documents. So I, I'm well, sure that there are um, numbers of, of resources out there where you can uh, find more about standards and about how it's done. This this is Ken. That sounds almost uh, like the inverse of what happens in litigation when counsel, or actually nowadays outside contractors on behalf of counsel, are analyzing e-discovery document or documents as part of the e-discovery process. Um, I that is a little bit out of my bailiwick, to tell you the truth. Well, but, I so Beth, Beth, um, part of the the metadata or the information that's being uh, that you're describing that's being collected or that's in these different uh, groups or collections yeah, from the document management system. So it is they're internally created documents as well as um documents that have been collected, either cases or articles that they think would be right 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 and some i mean the the largest proportion of uh of it is internal work product okay yeah that's made available um to anyone in the in the firm that has the credentials to access it yeah. Huh. So, so these products that we're talking about, and um, the uh, staff that it's taking to deal with vendors and contracts and figuring out uh, whatever is in the ingestion and all this stuff. I'm not familiar with a lot of these terms, but 
I'm curious about how this is transforming the what we used to call technical services. How how has your workload and staffing been changing and working with uh, IT was suggested? Um, what are your catalog departments merging into and how are your staff being pulled away from cataloging and dealing with print stuff and going into all of this um, uh, metadata work and uh, discovery layers and so on? Well, this is Vicki. Um, for us, this is, again, um, since we haven't gone live with Alma, the discovery and the metadata and such is just a small part of what our tech services department is doing. Um, I don't want to be changing us off of the metadata, but for here at Wisconsin, much of what we're spending our time on is working with space issues and um, more looking at what we've purchased electronically, what can we withdraw from our print collection because of various reasons for uh, budget. Either we can't be affording to buy print and electronic or we're going trying to be going more electronic only, and as a result, the space crunch from our shelves are just plain too packed, or there's other departments who are looking to uh, space in some of our libraries on campus and needing to take that over. So much of our time is being spent analyzing the collection and looking at ways to downsize if we have a shared print repository, which we do, our campus has a shared print repository, we are um, contributing materials to that and then looking to downsize the print in our own collection. So metadata and work with that is just part of what our tech services folks are working with. And if so I could, your work, oh, sorry, go ahead. Your workload is shifting then, right? So the the normal workload that you used to do in print is deliberately reduced so that you can focus on the digital, is that right? That is true. Um, we had been purchasing many of the loose leaf services. Now we have it electronically, so we're canceling the print. We've left our print on the shelves ever since we canceled it. Now we're at the point in time, because we've been getting it electronically for three, four years, now we're looking at that print and saying, is it time to pull that? Is it now essentially too old to be worthwhile, or are the cases that are in those loose leaf services still valuable? So we're doing a lot of collection analysis in that way. Is it worth taking up the space on the shelf because the material is available in various databases? So yeah. I think that our department is doing a lot more collection analysis. Even though there is still print coming in, the monographs we're still getting, um, we do have our campus has patron-driven acquisitions programs. We've been spending more time looking at that. That's another area that collection development and the technical services librarians are um, spending time on, but it's not solely that yet. So uh, this is Beth. If I could jump in with an, exam an example in my tiny uh, group of electronic resources management, uh, which is uh, the new name for technical services, uh, we have recently had to um, had to change out uh, one of our positions, which was a serials assistant who traditionally dealt with, again, checking in serials and opening the mail and helping with the shelving and, and so on, um, to someone called electronic resources um, coordinator 
because we needed someone, uh, we needed to move from a paraprofessional who was accustomed to working with the print to someone who can help us manage the electronic resources, uh, the e-books and so on that we are, uh, that we're moving towards. We also are facing space issues and we've been reevaluating all the collection, all the print, trying to uh, wean the attorneys away from their print resources. Uh, slowly it's coming, but, um, you know, I, one of the things that, that we find ourselves in between a rock and a hard place, because I, we're still waiting for uh, some of the vendors to develop their ebook platforms to make it practical for a library the size of ours to manage an ebook collection. We can't have people going to websites and buying their own ebooks. I mean, they would do it, you know, if we gave them the money, but when we're spending the firm's money, it needs to be a resource that can be checked in and checked out to someone else again. And you may know that there's only one vendor at the moment who's actually providing that, that service, and we found that, um, and this is the Lexus Digital Library, which with which we've had some success. It's slow going, but as attorneys, our attorneys are traveling all the time, and they love to have something they can put on their iPad. And so um, we really envision that's part of the future of our transition from print to digital. Um, and insofar as discovery goes, is again, um, and I, maybe some of your audience are actually in uh, special libraries, not in university settings, so uh, they may not be in a position to obtain discovery platforms, but what we've done is just integrated everything into the ILS. Every single thing that comes in the door is cataloged. Everything that any attorney in the firm asks us to purchase for them is in the catalog, whether it's print or electronic, and represented in such a way that they have easy access. And we have applied a set of our own very simple um, additional categories, such as the practice areas that something is appropriate for, and we have a section of the ILS called web subscriptions where they can find at any time those resources that are available firm-wide, and they have all instructions how to get there if there's anything besides just uh, clicking on the link. It tells them what to do and what um, and how to take care of it, and um, additionally, we have a uh, password management system. We use Priory Solutions uh, research monitor, and now we've adapted their um, their mobile platform, Deb, um, excuse me, uh, Research Hub, which allows the attorneys access to all these resources on the move. So um, instead oh. of having this overreaching big uh, discovery platform, we've had to work around uh, workarounds using smaller systems, but just with the main idea of helping the attorneys discover what they need to uh, practice. So, Beth, yeah. um, if I can jump in for a second. One, um, you know, you're, you started with describing this new position, and first of all, I'd say um, I was excited to see uh, when it was listed that you build it as a serial rock star. So, Hey, I think that's kind of a cool idea, um, and I hope that that brings in people who who might not otherwise sort of see that and 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 show that you're focusing on this as you know a key player and and good player in that. But um, one thing that I wanted to ask about that I I know I've heard talked about that you do, you you mentioned putting links in the catalog and accessing electronic resources. 
and somebody earlier mentioned patron-driven acquisition. Um, can you describe sort of your experience with what I sort of understand to be patron-driven access? As in when the ebook collection you get through Niley and I think some other ones um, where right. people can access electronic books um, from your catalog, but it's, I think it's that you're only billed or you're only charged the, the lease when it's accessed? Is that no, accurate? No, actually, no. There, there, there are two different things. The Lexus Digital Library is a fixed part of our um, of um, our Lexus contract, which reflects mm -hmm. the exact count of our Matthew Bender treatises and the okay. desk books that we buy from Lexus. Um, the e-books from Niley, uh, I think it's up to 75,000 titles, are available to us directly in our catalog because we worked with the vendor, Niley and Debevoys, worked with EOS to integrate our catalogs on the back end. So if one of our attorneys does a search and turns up an e-book from the New York Law Institute, they can check it out on the spot. They get a link that goes directly to the resource. They know uh, how to get into that particular website. They have credentials. And um, they can have their e-book within minutes. Now, uh, you would have to speak to um, uh, to Ralph Monaco to find out whether they are on a, uh, a patron-driven uh, purchase program or not. I'm, I do know that eBooks come up once you're searching in the cat, not in our catalog, not the titles that are already there. But if you go to their platform and you're and you're searching for other titles, you will be told this is not in the collection. Uh, you know, put in a request to have access to it. So oh, good. Okay. I'm not an expert on that. I do know that all we're making available right now are the two resources, the Matthew Bender treatises, both as e-books and on a separate platform um, on the web, which is a custom user interface that we have uh, from Lexis, so our attorneys can get access to the full content of every Matthew Bender treatise online without non-metered. Um, as opposed to get as to opposed to doing a Lexus search and um, and finding the content that way. Yep. Yes, this is Brian. What is your ILS? Uh, we're using EOS.web. Okay. And they've recently been purchased by Circe Dynex, so I'm wondering if. You know, we uh, may be exposed to the the Circe Dynex has a discovery platform, um, which I haven't looked into yet, but that may be in our future. Wow, that's curious to see how that's going to evolve for you. Yeah, has anybody? Uh, I know that uh, Roger and I have talked, and he mentioned about. Um, he seems to have some information about OCLC's move into the iOS. World, I'm real curious about how that's gonna work. Does anybody know anything about it or heard anything? Or that? Are you talking about the World Share Management Service? That one? Yeah. Okay, that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I'll mention um, sort of generally the stuff. I don't know the specifics, and I know Brian had mentioned in the chat room. You know, the acquisitions module doesn't work great, and I've heard people, for instance. Um, not really a question, but but you know exploring what the status of, for instance, circulation. But I think an interesting thing, since our sort of central 
idea here is, you know, what's the future of technical services is also, you know, what is the future of the tools we use for our day-to-day -day jobs of acquisitions, management, of intake, output, access, discovery, and something that's, um, you know, potentially going to be turned on its head quickly, but has been relatively stable in, you know, the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years, certainly maybe more, is, you know, the, the ILS, the, the central tool that we use to coordinate a lot of this stuff. You know, discovery adds this extra piece to it where we're, you know, providing access to things that, that weren't there. But specifically on the OCLC thing, uh, World Share Management Services, their WMS, they're trying to compete head-to-head -head with, you know, the innovative interfaces and um, Ex Libris and, and other traditional ILS vendors. Um, and so it's interesting. It's not clear whether people are jumping into this really quickly or sort of where we're at, but it is interesting that, you know, the world could change dramatically in terms of the tools that people use on a day-to-day -day basis to um, to manage all of the um, the acquisitions, the purchasing, the access, and everything else like that. Whereas a few years ago, it seems that this was relatively unthinkable for large organizations to decide to, you know, or, or to try to make that leap to go from a established system with lots of complicated rules and, and mappings and, and, you know, patron and collection types and all of those things to, to try to move to another platform. We've got a, a, a listener who uh, wants to hear a little bit more about the people side of this. What skills will tech services folks need in future law libraries? How will what they need to know differ from what you all and your colleagues need to know now? Um, I still think that there's, this is Vicki, I still think there's definitely a need for cataloging. Um, there's even with the e-resources, the vendors are not on board yet with providing bibliographic records to the databases. I'm on the task force for ALL to try to get them on board, and I know Hein is going to be coming out with a new library, and one of the options is to purchase the bibliographic records from them. I've talked with them. Um, as with any... I think we lost someone. Oh, yeah. Usually it's Skype that that uh, causes people I'll to fill drop in, out, not the old I'll, plain I'll old fill telephone in part service. Of the conversation Go. that uh, a lot of us are paying Cassidy cataloging services for that kind of information regarding vendor databases. And this is Beth. I have been catalog. I've been having Cassidy catalog our electronic resources for almost 10 years, and, and also they were doing it before I started. Um, so we ha And also, every time a vendor changes a platform, thank you, Walters Kluwer, um, you know, when you go from the, um, the one, one platform to the next, all your links have to change, uh, titles are rearranged, you know, uh, things, things have to be updated to reflect what you're doing, and I think that's why some people uh, we're first in love with serial solutions because they thought, oh, great, someone's going to be updating these records all the time, little knowing that it wasn't going to work exactly as, as advertised. So um, I'm all in favor of paying professionals to do the cataloging, but I also am on the committee that's trying to get vendors to provide them for these resources. 
and uh, we've had quite an interesting experience just with the ebooks. You would think for you know ninety or something titles that they could manage it, but the biggest issue that we have is that uh, the vendor has a platform that treats all uh, all issues of uh, for example, an annual as a completely new book. So instead of giving us a permalink for the latest edition of the New York CPLR, every time a new issue comes out, I have to go get a new uh, record for it. And um, if you ask them at Harvard if they would be able to manually do that in, in their catalog, the answer would be no. So I can integrate my books, but other people have separate um, separate platforms to search for eBooks just for that reason. This is okay, Valerie. So Candace, um, go ahead. I um, I just wanted to jump in a little bit. So we've we have completely um, sort of re reworked technical services at the University of Utah Quinney Library, um, and a lot of a lot of the copy cataloging um, that we've been doing um, it has been basically eliminated here um, with Shelf Ready Services, which has um, freed up some of our time to do other things with electronic resource management. Our serials processing um, has been significantly reduced, um, not to say that it's not still important, and so we do we still have that as a focus, but um, we're fortunate to be able to piggyback on our main library with our discovery layer systems and our catalog and our ERM systems. Um, and a lot of the metadata for our, our resources is already in the link resolver. Um, it's already being provided by the vendors. I think that I think that new technical services librarians really need to know how to navigate um, this process of working with electronic resource management and working with other libraries and, and sort of collaborating. Um, on these systems, because it's it's always going to be the vendors are always going to have different approaches. Things are always going to live in other silos. Um, but I think we need people who really understand the technical um, big picture. I guess if you if you can put it that way. So I think people need to understand broadly what metadata standards are what they're used for and, and how to use them. Um, I think they need to understand how to make resources more accessible by their special communities. I think law libraries have special needs. Right now our discovery layer is way too big, way too complex, has way too much stuff in it for our community. And so I'm working to simplify um, the environment for our community specifically. Um, so I think you just I think we need people who really understand and can navigate this technical this new technical environment because it's constantly changing. Um, let's see. Sorry, uh, are, are you there? Can you back. can you guys hear me? I got cut off. I'm sorry. This is Vicky. Uh, yeah, all of a sudden you dropped. So um, yeah, you were in I'm the middle here. of telling us that you think that catalogers are still necessary. I think they're necessary in so far as making um the electronic resources available until um especially since the vendors until they're on board with providing good quality accessible records 
there is still definitely a need for catalogers to be involved in the electronic resources. Um, I've heard that many of our students are able to find, our students and the reference librarians are able to find materials that we have, especially in Hein Online, um, because they are cataloged. It, you can buy the records from Cassidy. You can have them activated from, in our case, SFX, but if they're not good quality records, what is the discoverability of that? And um, we really need the vendors to get on board with providing good quality bibliographic records so that the students and the, the um, patrons can find the material. And I'd also like to second the notion that um, that flexibility and ability to understand electronic resources, um, you know, depends upon probably a number of skills, but um, someone that can grasp the idea that what you're learning, how you're learning to do something, um, you know, can can change at any time. Vendors change, products change. So it's really the ability to uh, sort of look at the big picture and understand how, um, you know, you, 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 may, you may learn a number of little systems, a number of little techniques. I mean, how many people, you know, knew WordPerfect, but they were able to transfer that to Word. So it's a question, instead of learning specific programs, it's a question of learning concepts and um and being able to look at the big picture. And then anyone, you know, you can teach anyone to use some of these systems, um, but if they don't have, uh, if they don't have the, the kind of attitude towards, um, towards the value of what you're doing and why you're, why you're going to this trouble. I mean, people who complain about the detail of cataloging are not thinking about the benefit we've had all these years of the fixed fields that lets me just tell an attorney, here, do you want print or do you want digital? Just click this little button and your results will be uh, filtered accordingly. So, um, you know, someone that understands that type of mindset would be far more useful to me than someone that just knows a particular system. This is Ken. I, that, I was going to offer some an, an answer to that question as well, which um, the flexibility in the person that you've described was at the top of my list. Uh, one or two other skills or traits or attitudes would include a, an understanding of the structure of data and, and that could you know that could be a concept that could come from straight from cataloging and it could also come from people who know how to work with SQL databases but it's the idea that order and normalization makes life a lot better for everyone amen so talk to us a little bit when you say order uh, Here's what I'm thinking of a little bit. This is Brian. So uh, we had a situation happen that involved a lot of different departments and people. Our ILP uh, online just stopped one day, and it took us uh, four days for me and the IT people and uh, the people at EBSCO because EBSCO hosts us. They kept saying, no, it's not on our end. And we said, well, it probably is. We don't think it's on our end. And so... This thing goes back and forth, and so when you say sort of like uh, get the big picture, 
how do you how do you look ahead of time and say, okay, if X happens, then Y personnel will take care of it, so that none of the other personnel are involved or are confused with this technology problem? There's no problem that it certainly it's just about there now and if it's not there it, it, it will be in the future there are very few problems that won't require a team effort to analyze what's going on and to solve it this is especially true when you have multiple parties and including not just we the library and not just the vendor of a given database, but the people running the networks that connect it all. And any and one I'll, of those places could be the bottleneck, or more than one that. at once. Um, Go ahead, Roger. And one another piece that you know is very critical is sometimes it's on the financial side. Sometimes all of your technical things can line up, but if it turns out that the, for instance, a vendor who's processing it didn't. Um, didn't approve your renewal correctly and they had it set to time out automatically. I've seen it happen yeah. where all the technical stuff lines up, but then, oh, you know, a quick call to the billing department solves that problem. And I t but I totally agree, you know, everything needs to be a team effort and, and sort of the triage or the um, diagnosis is, I think, getting more complex and is, is sort of less um, specifically in one person's um, wheelhouse. But problem solving is an excellent skill to have in this field. Well, and this is, any kind of experience problem solving in a on uh, technology is incredibly important. Knowing the difference between IP authentication and all the other ways that we get the information. Because some of the problems that are starting to appear, like what Brian was just describing with the index legal periodicals. Nobody knew. Everybody was pointing at everybody else. And then I, I, if any of you have, are using New York Times uh, group pass, their uh, group uh, subscription service, just out of the blue, I think it was three weeks ago, uh, apparently they upgraded their servers which required all local users to re-authenticate on campus before you could use your account off campus. But they didn't tell us, but we sleuthed around and tried to figure it out. And these are, in, in a way, it's the same old thing. I remember how uh, loose-leaf vendors used to throw in you know, unexpected things or treatise publishers uh, and sometimes there were a mystery and some phone calls, but now it's all uh, highly technical stuff. This is Vicki. Um, I would I would definitely agree with that. It's not just the technical, though. I, I think that um, I think it was Bess who was saying about um, sometimes it's your vendor that didn't get your payment in time and they cut you off. Then they get the payment. Did they get it back on? We try to be more proactive as much as possible and have reports run that are, uh, we call them the broken link report. Are we So our catalogers are going through that. Are the links not working? 
Um, there was one particular journal subscription. It was an electronic only, and we do get use statistics to analyze at the time of renewal, is this getting the use, does it warrant renewal, or is no one using it? And in this particular case, no one had used this title. So we thought we would cancel. We were kind of surprised nobody was using it. Well, it turns out the vendor had had us up and running, and then somewhere during the year turned us off, and we didn't know it. So, of course, there was no use because our access had been turned off and we didn't realize it. So when you look at your use statistics, you know, how reliable is that? So that's another aspect of technical services that we've tried to take on to be more proactive in making sure that our electronic access is still working as it should be. And the other thing is is in some of our um, link resolvers, when it says that our access covers these years, is that correct? Will the patron be seeing this in our library catalog that we have only back to a certain time, 2009 or whatever, and is that really the case? There's a constant need for maintenance of the access, the information we're providing to our patrons of what is really available. Yeah, yeah isn't that annoying? I'm just taking a little yeah. step outside here where, you know, in the old days you bought a set of books or you bought a treatise put it on the shelf, and it wasn't going anywhere. I mean, unless somebody stole it or something. But uh, but now, electronically, you can, quote, own, lease, or whatever your kind of access is one minute and not have it available the next. And, and, and it could either be a glitch, it could be your access point, your wireless access point's yeah. gone out, your university network or your, you know, corporate network who your service provider it could be but anyway, here one second gone the next. Right. Exactly. Do you think it's possible for a for a, a unit like our libraries, say, um for subunits of, of larger entities, is it possible for uh because I don't understand this, is it possible for all of the departments we've been talking about that that need to coordinate new team efforts. Is it could you have a like a flow chart, sort of an if then, if then, because otherwise sometimes IT is calling one person and at the same time Rich is calling, you know, his rep or or, you know, a billing, our our acquisitions person is calling billing. So we, we can have one problem where three people are simultaneously spending their time diagnosing. And I'm just curious if anybody's Develop some kind of a of a operating procedure that uh, if X happens, then Y person does, and then if Y person can't, then X person does. Or, or is it just going to be sort of a free Brian, for all? This is Roger. Um, on that specific point, um, we we've tried to do that. Um, what we do is we have a um, the, and, and in particular, the thing that most often comes up is. Somebody says, I tried to use X resource, and it didn't work. Um, so what we have is, um, I think it's called a database triage form. And uh, what it does is it sort of walks people through, you know, um, our most commonly solved or the, sort of the low-hanging fruit in terms of access. You know, I couldn't get to this. Well, can you get to something else? You know, are you, you know which, what are you trying to do? And sort of walks through that, and it's kind of a self-serve mode. But we also encourage people at the circulation desk and reference desk to to send that to people so they can walk through it. And the last step is, 
okay, if all else fails, fill out this form and send us the details. And it goes into sort of a help desk ticketing system. Um, that, uh, it's only sort of hopefully helpful because I, I don't have any idea how many things are solved by people doing it themselves, but I do know how many things are not solved by um you know, by the you know fact that I, I I get things in the mail saying you know help me this is complicated. Right. So that's just one example of of you know an attempt at kind of addressing that sort of you know multifaceted um, you know, conundrum of the problem of I can't get to that thing that I want. Right. This is Vicky at the UW. We have um, at the bottom of our library web pages um, in the library catalog, if the patron can't access the particular title, there is an email link that they can click on and say they're having trouble accessing it. Then those librarians who monitor that email list try to sift it out. But of course, it's gotten so complicated. Um, here within House, we've tried creating a spreadsheet for this vendor, here is the contact helpline, so that if whoever is here, somebody might be able to contact the helpline, but you still end up with the various aspects of did it get paid, what's your account number, and we try to keep that spreadsheet up to date, but you can't do it for everybody, especially when you've negotiated um, subscriptions, uh, campus-wide subscriptions for a package plan of a particular vendor's journals. You know, So then it's a lot of times is who's paying for this, especially on a large campus like ours. We have several libraries on our campus who bought this for campus-wide access, and it, it is very complicated. I think it's gotten more complicated with the electronic access rather than less for the tech services folks. When we migrated to Alma, we set up a system whereby people can – people are directed to an e-ticketing system if they encounter an error in the catalog. And so if they click on something and it doesn't go where it's supposed to go, or it's a dead link or something, they go right to a ticketing system. Um, and then like everything in the ticketing system goes to, I think, just one or two people. And then those people delegate from there. And that's worked really well for us. Wow, I like the right how, to the ticket. Seth? Yeah. How, um, oh wait. Was that you just talking? That was Valerie. <laughs> yeah, that's Not what I thought. How do you, how do you handle these issues in the uh, firm with ebooks and and so forth and the way you were describing the way people were accessing information? I imagine you're encountering access right. problems all the time. There are two of us. There's uh, the I have someone. I have four people in my group. Or one is the open position. One person is essentially a circulation assistant and the other one uh, electronic resources analyst and she and I do 99% uh, of the troubleshooting for these issues. We work with vendors, we work with IS, we work with our ILS vendor um, and uh, we're the ones that generally you know, at least in that way, it's centralized, and we usually can recognize what the source of the error is. But uh, we have been caught out by our IT people who often um, move a server, and therefore one of the, um, you know, we're very security conscious here so that, um, you know, we have firewalls and vendors have to have, you know, we have to have their IP addresses, they have to have permission to get through certain firewalls and so on. And, you know, we've spent 
um, a lot of time pursuing problems that turned out to be internal to the firm because a server was moved and uh, we they neglected to tell us that we had a no IP address range available or you know and th those types of, of problems so um, you know we're get, we're getting used to it but anyone that says oh it's going to be really simple if you go digital <laughs> uh, has not had the real life experience that all of us have had right you hit that nail right on the head. That it also goes to another thing that I've noticed over the years: um, libraries that do their jobs really well. I, I hate the way that sounded. Uh, law librarians or law libraries that do their jobs very well um, are taken for granted because that's part of what we do is we serve our patrons in such a way that they don't even think about us. Seamless. So uh, it's seamless. And seamless so, delivery. It's seamless, yeah. and, you know, and I think that no feedback a lot of times is an indication that you're doing your job great, you know, because you're going to hear complaints uh, when it isn't going right or people can't find what they want. And occasionally you get a pat on the back, and that I, of course, appreciate that. But um, uh, we're right in the middle of. Um, I, it, I'm sure everybody knows that by now Brian Stryman is retiring, and he's created a mess. Well, of a big void in our uh, tech services. Well, it's trying to explain to the dean what Brian does and what we need you know, what we can do to replace them. Uh, I might have been talking, uh, you know, in Mongolian. Uh, she just didn't have a clue. That's true. And so it kind of gets to what you were just saying. Um, uh, while we're doing our job well, they go ahead, keep doing it. I'd like to put in a plug for something that raises our particular profile within the firm, and that is yeah. that we've started providing what we call concierge services to attorneys so that, for example, when we're trying to help them uh, use ebooks or install uh, uh, this application that we have, uh, this um, research hub application, we actually, although I have training, regular training sessions, I actually go to their offices and do hands-on with them. Now, there's no way anybody in a university is going to be able to do that, and I'm certainly never going to meet all of our, you know, uh, New York partners that way. But it does go a long way to getting a product out there and getting, you know, technical services out from behind, um, you know, the back door, so to speak. So uh, it's been very successful, and anybody who's out there who is in a smaller situation than a university, I highly recommend you make yourselves visible because then when it works for one lawyer, he's going to tell his friends about it and then they're going to say, oh, you know, can you help me install that gadget that, you know, so-and-so has down the hall? So that's helping us quite a bit in terms of, um, you know, really getting out, seeing the attorneys and making sure, you know, one of my jobs is to make sure that the attorneys know what they have access to and there's so much information and there's so much current awareness and so many resources all over the place 
that um, the best thing we can do for them, here's your list of everything that you need for your mergers and acquisitions um, uh, practice. Is there anything else I can get for you? And they love it. And this is Valerie, and I I think I love that point, and I actually think that we should add that to the um, the job skills of the new the new technical services librarian, someone who's willing to go out and do some outreach and actually sit with faculty. Um, at Utah, we've expanded our role into you know e-publishing and helping faculty upload their SSRN. Uh, their publications to SSRN, and I, I absolutely have to go to their offices and show them how to do that and how to, you know, manage their faculty profiles um, on their website. Um, so I think somebody who's willing to go out and work directly with faculty and almost be, you know, quote unquote, um, embedded um, in the college or in the firm. This is Vicki. At Wisconsin, I would like to just add on to what Valerie and Beth were saying. At Wisconsin, we're trying to, instead of buying the BE Press, we're trying to create our own digital repository, and we're doing the same thing, trying to work with faculty. And I think tech services and public services are going to be working more closely. I think that the division between the two departments is going to become far more um, fuzzy because we'll be working more with them to try to help with the faculty with creating this repository of material of what they published, what was published in the past, um, and making it more accessible in that way, oh. helping them in that way. Uh, Vicki, one area is uh, uh, something that's very near and dear to my heart. I, I, I think you're right on the money. And uh, at the beginning of our, uh, you know, this uh, podcast, when Brian was reading the list of titles, you remember all the times that uh, for tech services people it was discovery and user experience and things like that. I think that goes to exactly what you were just saying. And tech services really is all about helping our users find our stuff and use it. And so that is kind of blurring the line between tech services and public services. One thing that I think is... Oh, this is Roger. Just I want to make a quick point, and I realize we've got about 15 minutes left, so I'll, I'll keep it short. But one thing I think that has been a real value, and this is a very academic, um, as in law school, um, comment, but that has been a great value of things like institutional repositories and hosting scholarship and things is to find ways to leverage the promotional potential of that content and um, sort of that peering access to the materials. So adding things where you've got links directly to your repository or commercial services and things that show up on faculty profiles that promote their scholarship, that get the word out there. I think though those aren't getting to core library values of law students seeking answers to questions through a catalog interface, they are great um, for promotional uh, vehicles and also you know, ways that students can connect with faculty and scholars and, and understanding what it is that they um, are providing. And if it's put in an ecosystem that can kind of cross-pollinate on the, the PR or, or you know, sort of um, profile side of things for the people producing the scholarship and the um, students consuming the scholarship, I think there's a real value there. And a lot of that doesn't have to be highly technical um, uh, kind of things expecting 
many years of experience and you know advanced uh, you know understanding of metadata schema and things like that. So that's my one point on the AR our IR thing that I think is is a great area that that a lot of schools I think are doing and and is a good sort of strategic direction to move in for that stuff. Yeah. Well, we this are. This is Vicky. Okay. Go sorry. for it. Go, Vicky. Oh, I was just going to add on to that. Um, I think that technical services is going to be having to spend more time doing more PR of what are the new purchases, what are the new things that are available, new databases, um, new ebook opportunities, be them packages or individual purchases, that I could see um, being a role in the future, either sending them out in newsletters, RSS feeds or digital signage in some way. Again, I'm coming from an academic standpoint, so this would vary depending upon what the listeners, what kind of libraries they're coming from, but being more proactive to let your users know what it is that you have available. Well, I think this speaks to what Bess had mentioned of you know going to individual attorneys' offices, and it's maybe lowercase d discovery, so it's not these super sophisticated systems, but it's you know, helping people discover what it is that they need and what it is that you have. So I think that that's right. a real sort of creative um, and flexible space of promotion that we can look to. Where do public services and reference librarians kind of meld into this pot of uh, of doing that one-on-one -on -one training and analysis and understanding of the products that we're getting into? I We've talked a lot about tech services, IT people, and so on. Is there, is there also the same kind of dramatic change we need to be looking at in terms of public services as well? Well, I think so. I mean, we actually uh, do this program sometimes in conjunction with our research staff because they may be the ones that hear from the attorneys that they can't, you know, oh, I'm traveling, I can't get access to my BNA newsletters, or, you know, I need PLC, I'm on the go, please help me. And I have gone, some of my, uh, some of my trips have been with a researcher who uh, we have them embedded in different practice areas so they can know the attorneys better and get to know what, what their needs are. And um, in that way, um, that's how we can, that's how we best work together. I mean, other than, you know, uh, cross-fertilizing uh, with, with ideas of finding uh, new tools for the attorneys, have it, they suggest things to us, we suggest things to them. Um, so we're definitely working in that direction. This One is of Vicky the, again. Uh, Go ahead. Go, Vicki. Go. Um, I would just say that I find it very useful to work with the reference librarians. I think we're technical services librarians. The frame of mind that we're coming from is very different than where reference librarians are coming from. And in working with them, um, in working through some of the problems, in considering collection development pieces, and just getting a better understanding of how they're using the catalog and the databases from the reference desk, is very enlightening because it's not necessarily the same way that a technical services person will see it. And so I think it's critical to continue working closely with the reference staff to make them aware of what's out there, how to access it, because we can't assume that either they're assuming from us or we assuming from them that we're coming from the same page. Okay. Um, in sort of 
closing and kind of wrapping things up a little bit. Want to leave a few minutes to talk about upcoming events. This has just been a fascinating conversation for me, and um, I'd like to make one sort of overarching observation that keeps coming to mind. Um, I can't help but uh, share it. it. You know, back in the very old days, very old, like <laughs> library at Alexandria days, you know, um, there weren't uh, online catalogs or card catalogs or anything like that for researchers to get access to the materials. You know, from as near as anybody can tell, it was, I guess, a big building with, you know, shelves and shelves full of scrolls and stuff like that. So how did the researchers get access to the contents, you know, the materials? Well, they, again, as near as we can tell, a scholar or a researcher would come to the library and would sit down with the librarian or a librarian who was specifically responsible for that area of bibliography who would say, okay, what are you looking for? Oh, you're looking for that? Well, are you, you know, want, prefer this kind of format or do you prefer clay tablets or scrolls or are you interested in the historical analysis? But it was the librarian who served as the um, sort of mediator between the researcher and the collection. I, I think, in a weird sense, we're kind of coming full circle. Um, the materials, the digital materials that we're dealing with are virtually invisible unless you provide a link or a, a picture on a homepage or something like that. And so for figuring out, it seems to me one of my biggest challenges, one of the things that I keep wrestling with is how do we make our patrons aware of those electronic resources that we own, but they're online? You know, they're you can't put them on a shelf and show them. So it's so with like what Bess and what everybody was saying, and and Vicky and and uh, Valerie all were talking about relating to the faculty, going out and helping them get access to the material. It, it, do you see what I mean? It's kind of a an interesting hearkening back to the library at Alexandria where we need to be more proactive at being the mediator between our researchers and our collections. I think it's just a cool kind of a circle. Now you should have the soundtrack for um, The Lion King, you know, the circle of life. <laughs> Does that make any sense at all? No. <laughs> oh, Brian. <laughs> All right. Well, so in wrapping up here, um, um, and I got uh, my excuse is I'm half delirious. The uh, Novocaine's wearing off. My jaw's starting to throb. We do have a couple of announcements that we wanted to make. Uh, first uh, and foremost that I wanted to mention uh, for everybody who is listening, um, you know, either live or otherwise, um, Holly uh, Riccio um, had contacted me uh, a while back and asked if we'd be interested in 
doing the podcast at AAL. And so we are indeed, um, we're going to be on the schedule. We're going to be broadcasting every afternoon for about an hour, uh, hour and a half at the end of the day to recap what's going on uh, that day. Uh, hopefully some keynote speakers, uh, special guests will be uh, dropping by. We're going to be just set up in a room near, um, actually, I don't know where we're going to be, but a place that's handy. And so we invite people to, um, if you can't attend AAAL, this may be a good way to, you know, pick up on what's going on. Uh, and if you are there and you just want to share something and talk about how great a program was, uh, drop in and talk with us. Uh, Roger and Marcia and and Ken and anybody else who will be here, or will be there, uh, will be there and we'll be broadcasting. So we're very excited about that. Any other announcements that anybody wants to mention? Callie's coming up in Denver, University of Denver this year. Hello? Hello, we're still here. I have no announcements other than just to say thanks to everybody for um, the conversation and um, clearly, you know, figuring out the future of technical services is not something covered um, quickly or lightly. And I'm glad that we've started to have this discussion and I hope that it continues in other areas. I couldn't agree more. Um, Let's see, a couple of other, uh, you know, one. Thing I saw in my notes, a Duke announced that they're doing away with print for their law reviews. As far as I know, they're the one and only, first and only at this point, that have gone that far. Any feedback about that? Good idea, bad idea? Yay, Duke. Good idea. <laughs> Good idea. Are there embargo dates when, when this is done? I don't know. I'm just curious if, if the if the restriction of doing that means that you don't get to see the first three issues or something. <laughs> I haven't heard anything like that. But I no. commend Duke for being I, so courageous. I am very excited about that. In Richmond, where I'm heading, I'm glad to say that the Journal of Online Law and Technology is not moving to print, but it's going to stay online as well. So that's that's a good in the future. Yeah. Speaking right. of publishing, I I have a uh, a shameless promotion to make. Please. The uh, dialogue that Jim Millis and I started two years ago in our presentations at the Cali meeting on the future of academic law libraries uh, will yeah. now appear as our companion articles in the upcoming, although. By the date I say, it will tell you it won't sound like it, it, it will sound like it should have already been published, but they're behind. The fall 2014 issue of Law Library Journal will have our articles in it. Wonderful! Great. That was a good conversation. I thought. All right. And Anything else? Yeah, that being the case, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us today. 
we had a real strong uh, number in the uh, chat room. And uh, thank you very much, chat roomers, for uh, uh, participating and for your input. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody that if you enjoyed the show and want to tell other people to listen, it's available at the Blog Talk Radio website for download and also on iTunes. And um, uh, are planning to do a um, podcast in uh, April. And um, uh, I tentatively talked to Holly Riccio. Uh, she'll is interested in joining us on April 24th, which I think is the fourth Friday of April. And... Um, uh, and she told me that at that time she'd be interested in maybe discussing about the AALL representation or representative program. But I'll have more about that later. But you can tentatively put it on your calendar for April 24th. But um, thank you, Valerie, Bess, and Vicki. This was fantastic. Yep. I And Brian, and I really learned a lot. Uh, Ken, always thanks, Roger. and thanks for the song. Oh, yeah. um, and Roger, thanks as always for uh, being there, and look forward to seeing everybody again next month. Thank you so Until- much. Thanks everybody. Thank you for Have a great us. weekend. Thank you. Until we meet again. Happy trails. Uh, or trials. Trials. Okay. I just need some music to figure it out. Well, someday. Until then, we'll just sort of bumble along. Hey, Ken, do you have a song that you can sing us out with? (laughs) None that uh, I'm properly licensed through ASCAP or BMI (laughs) for you. (laughs) You can sing a Jonathan Colton song. They're all uh, Creative Commons, aren't they? Uh, I don't know. Well, we've only got 10 seconds left. Oh, no. All right. Yeah, Not yeah. even enough time for the minute waltz. No. <laughs> don't even, don't go there with no blurred lines, please. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Good group. <laughs>